So chapter 22, verse 36. When Balak, the king of Moab, heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab, which was on the border of Arnon at the boundary of his territory. Balak said to Balaam, did I, send, did I not send again and again to you to summon you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? Balaam said to Balak, Look, I have come to you. Now I am able to speak. Just say anything I must speak. Only the word of God puts in my mouth. So Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kirzah-Hurzoth. And Balak sacrificed bulls and sheep and sent some to Balaam and to the princes who were with him. Then on the next morning, Balak took Balaam and brought him up to Bamoth, Baal. From there he saw the extent of the nation. Balaam makes it very clear to Balak what he's getting for his money. <laughs> You're paying me to curse Israel, but I'm telling you right now, I'm not capable of doing that. I can only say what this God says. And Balak completely ignores that. Now, we don't know why. Possibilities is maybe he's not comprehending what Balaam is, Balaam is saying because he's never heard anybody talk like that before about a God. It's possible that he's thinking once he gets into the throes of the incantations and the rituals, then everything will take over and everything will be okay. It's also possible he thinks that once he throws all the Benjamins in his lap, so to speak, that won't change everything as well. So the reality is he doesn't care. He thinks that this is going to happen the way he wants. Because the other thing that's possible is he's a king. He's used to getting whatever he wants because no one says to, no to kings in the ancient world because if you say no they kill you. And there's nothing anybody can do about it because they have absolute power. So they press on through. Chapter 23, verse 1. Balaam said to Balak, Build me seven altars here and prepare for me seven bulls and seven rams. So Balak did just as Balaam said. Balak and Balaam offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And Balaam said to Balak, Station yourself by your burnt offering and I will go off. Prepare Yahweh Perhaps Yahweh will come to meet me, and whatever he reveals to me, I will tell you. Then he went to the deserted height. So they bring him up on a cliff, and he can look down and he can see the encampment of Israel from a bird's eye view. And they're sacrificing in altars because the gods will only do what you want them to do if you feed them first. Okay? It's kind of like when your children get hangry you got to feed them, <laughs> and then everything gets better. And so the reality is you feed the gods. Now, you have to understand, like, this is super important because in the Gilgamesh epic, which is like the ancient Near Eastern's version of the flood story, the gods wipe out the humans because they're too noisy and too loud. And when they only keep a few humans alive because they say, who's going to feed us if all the humans die? So you have to understand how much the gods really want humans to feed them because they're willing to wipe out the entire world because they're a bunch of noisy teenagers staying up too late playing their music too loud. Yet, despite how annoyed they are, they're willing to keep a few humans alive because who's going to feed them? And so when the flood comes and wipes everybody out and um, the few humans that survive it, they haven't been able to sacrifice for several days because they're on the boat surviving the flood. When they finally get off the boat, they sacrifice their animal. And the text literally says that the gods came down from the heavens and descended upon the sacrifice 
like flies on rotting meat and fighting each other for the food. That's their portrayal of gods in the ancient world. It's so interesting that sac- this is the way they view their sacrifices that are gods. Yet in Leviticus, God makes it very clear that sacrifices for the cleansing of sins so you can be right with God again. And God doesn't really need your sacrifice. It's a demonstration of your faith. So this is what they're trying to do. They're trying to feed the gods to get them in a good mood so that they're more likely to do what you want them to do. It's manipulation. And so they sacrifice this on two altars, and they sacrifice seven rams and seven bulls, 14 animals total, which is a multiple of seven, which is completion. And they're trying to make sure that everything is done right. And then, like a sniper on a hill, he's got to have a perfect view of the camp so he can just throw his curses down on Israel and get everybody there. Verse 4, Then God met Balaam, who said to him, I have prepared seven altars, and I have offered on each altar a bull and a ram. Then Yahweh put a message in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak and speak what I tell you. Now that's important. God put his word in Balaam's mouth. And this is really important because remember, Balaam is not a godly man. His character is nowhere close to any of that of the prophets or that of Abraham or anybody. And he doesn't really want to do this for the right reasons. And yet, God can put his word in anybody that he chooses because he's sovereign over all things. And nothing can stop the word of God. And so this is what it says, verse 6. So he returned to him, and he was still standing by the burnt offerings and all the princes of Moab. And then Balaam uttered this oracle, saying, Balak, the king of Moab, brought me from Aram, and out of the mountains of the east, saying, Come, pronounce a curse on Jacob for me. Come, denounce Israel. How can I curse one whom God has not cursed? Or how can I denounce one who Yahweh has not denounced? For from the top of the rocks I see them, and from the hills I watch them. Indeed, a nation that lives alone, it will not be reckoned among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright, and let the end of my life be like theirs. Now that's powerful, because the first thing he says is, how can I do to God's chosen people what God has not done? Can anyone go against the will that God has pronounced upon a nation? No. And that's a huge profession of Yahweh's sovereignty here. And then he says, I see the splendors of this nation from the top. I look on them. And then he makes a connection to the Abrahamic covenant of chapter 15 and chapter 12 and 15 and 17 and 22, where it says that they were like the dust of the earth. So God says to Abraham, I'm going to make you like the dust of the earth in chapter um, 13. And now he's recounting that. So what's the point of this first blessing? This first blessing is a reminder that God is ultimately sovereign over Israel and nothing can happen to Israel that God hasn't willed. And two, God has been faithful to his promises that he made to Abraham because now they are truly numerous. So numerous that the powerful nations around them fear them. And the idea is God has honored his promises. And this is huge because remember Genesis ended on a God hasn't fulfilled his promises. 
Exodus ended on a, he kind of has fulfilled his promises, but kind of hasn't. Leviticus has too. In Numbers, even the end, we're not seeing total fulfillment of God's promises yet because they're not in the land. However, we do know that God has fulfilled his promises of the land technically because he did bring them there. And they're not getting it because of their disobedience. So the first blessing is God has been faithful to Israel. And nothing's going to happen that God doesn't want to happen. Then Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? I brought you to curse my enemies, but on contrary, you have only blessed them. Balaam replied, Must I not be careful to speak what Yahweh has put in my mouth? Balak said to him, Please come with me to another place from which you can observe them. You will only... You will see only a part of them, but you will not see all of them. Curse them for me from there. So Balak says, maybe we just don't have a good advantage point. <laughs> maybe we need a different angle and you can hit them a little bit better. Now, we've obviously lost something here from the ancient world because I have no idea why a different angle allows you to curse somebody a little bit better. <laughs> so there's something that we don't really quite understand that they would understand that's been lost in thousands of years of history. So Balak brought Balaam to the field of Zophim, to the top of Pigash, where he built seven altars and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. And Balaam said to Balak, Station yourself here by the burnt offerings where I meet Yahweh there. Then Yahweh met Balaam and put a message in his mouth and said, Return to Balak and speak what I tell you. When Balaam came to him, he was still standing by his burnt offerings, along with the princes of Moab. And Balak said to him, What has Yahweh spoken? So they build seven more altars. This is a power center, okay, with sacrifices, um, two sacrifices in each one. So there's a lot of sacrifices. Verse 18, the second prophecy. Balaam ordered this, or uttered this oracle and said, Rise up, Balak, and hear. Listen to me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a human being, that he should challenge his, change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it happen? Indeed, I have received a command to bless. He has blessed. I cannot reverse it. He has not looked on iniquity in Jacob, nor is he even troubled in Israel. Yahweh their God is with them. His acclamation as king is among them. God brought them out of Egypt. They have, as it were, the strength of a wild bull. For there is no spell against Jacob, nor is there any divination against Israel. At this time, I must, it must be said of Jacob and Israel, look at what God has done. Indeed, the people will rise up like a lioness, and like a lion raises himself up. And they will not lie down until they eat their prey and drink the blood of the slain. The second oracle goes like this. God is not a human and changes his mind. And he does not lie. Now, this is not specifically saying God doesn't tell lies. Now, I'm not saying he does. I'm just saying the focus here is not like on a Sunday school little story like, now there are boys and girls, that means don't lie. Okay, that's behaviorism. Now, is that important not to lie? Yes, but that's a different story, lesson from a different biblical passage. The point here is not a good little moral behaviorist story. The point is that God does not go back on his promises. It's not just lying in general. It's that when God makes a promise to bless Israel, he keeps that, period. That's the point here. 
If he says, I'm going to bless them, I'm going to be with them, I'm going to be their God, then he's not a human that goes back on treaties. He's not a human that changes his mind and finds a different nation to ally itself with. That's what our countries do. They break treaties all the time. They change their promises all the time. We do that. People have done that. When something better comes up, then, then I'll do that. But God says, I made a promise to Abraham, and I swore by my name and my character, which is unchangeable, that I'm going to do this. So no matter what you do, Balak, I don't care how many sacrifices you make, I don't care how much money you offer, you cannot get me to change a mind because I don't take bribes. Because that's what Balak is trying to do. If I fatten up this God with tons of sacrifices, eventually he'll change his mind. Now remember with Isaac, Isaac was told by God to bless Jacob. But the reason that Isaac didn't bless Jacob and bless Esau instead, because Esau brought him tasty meat all the time. And he took a bribe, so to speak. Not that Esau was intentionally trying to bribe him, but he allowed that to be a bribe in a subconscious way. And he changed the blessing from, Esau, from Jacob to Esau. However, <coughs> circumstances, he gets deceived. But that's kind of the idea here is that I don't care how much you feed me and how much you bribe me, I don't change my mind. So these altars were built to God and they were trying to bribe God. Exactly. Because in their mind, Yahweh is just another pagan God out there among the masses. And every, my great-great-great-great-great-grandparents, my great-great-great-grandparents, my great-grandparents, my father, me, everybody, we all know for thousands of years, this is how you get what you want of all the gods. And then you write, say the right words, and you magically bind them, and you get what you want. Now, not every person can do that. Only the powerful and the magicians can. And that's why they're more powerful and wealthy than everybody else, because they know how to do it right. So yeah, they're trying to bribe God. And God's basically saying, I can't be bribed. And I don't change my mind. And I don't go back on promises. And that's important because that's way bigger than not just lying about things that you do. That's about covenant loyalty. That's the character of God. And see, that's what you really should get out is I don't, I don't teach people not to lie because it's the wrong thing to do. I don't lie because covenant loyalty is important to me. See, that's a big difference. It's not just it's wrong and I'll get in trouble or I'll mess up relationships. I don't do that because covenant loyalty is everything to me. And then he says, remember, when we, when we get to Deuteronomy, God will say that the only thing that can make him reverse things is if they're disobedient. And even then, he doesn't break his promises to them of being their God. It's just that certain blessings are dependent upon obedience. But that's not him changing his mind either, because he specifically said that from the very beginning. So he then says, when I look on them, I don't find any iniquity or any sin in Jacob or Israel for me to curse them. The only reason I could punish Israel is if they violated the covenant. And they haven't. So I can't punish them. So I can't reverse what I said. Now, he goes on and says, then there's also no incantation, no spell, no divination. Divination is figuring out what the gods want against Israel. 
And this is where he begins to make it very clear, if you haven't figured it out yet, is that no one can defeat Israel militarily because Yahweh is the military king of the universe. But now God is making it clear that no one can defeat Israel magically or spiritually through curses because God is the sovereign God of the spiritual realm and all things in creation and the cosmos. And so what is making very clear is no one can touch you through magic, hexes, curses, spells, in any kind of way if Yahweh is for you. And nobody can defeat you militarily if Yahweh is for you within this covenant promises. Then he talks about the lion. Indeed, the people will rise up like a lioness and like a lion raises himself up. They will not lie down until they've eaten, had their prey. Now, this goes back to Genesis 49. So one of the first blessings that God put on Israel was through in Genesis 12, 15, 17, 22 with the Abrahamic covenant. Then when we get to Jacob, Jacob blesses his 12 sons and the two sons of Joseph. And when he gets to Judah, he says, Judah is a lion and the Judah will carry the scepter and the staff until it comes to the one whom it belongs. And he will be the leader and he'll be a lion. And then he says, who dares and rouse the lion of Judah? Like who in the world would have, be in the right man, mind to go up against the lion of Judah? Why? Because the Lion of Judah belongs to Yahweh. So now he's alluding to that again and is saying the Lion has roused up. You've come and you've kind of kicked the Lion of Israel because you're trying to kick God and you're trying to get God to curse Israel. And Israel's Lion, who is Yahweh, represented through Judah, the leader, is angry. And he will not rest until he's fed on his prey. Because now Israel is ready to go into the promised land and bring judgment on all the sins. And so what he's doing here is these first two oracles are focusing on the fact that those previous oracles of God are coming true. That those previous oracles or prophecies of God are coming true. Verse 25. Balak said to Balaam, Neither curse them at all, nor bless them at all. But Balaam replied to Balak, Did I not tell you all that Yahweh speaks I must do? Balak said to Balaam, Come, please, I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God to let you curse them for me from there. So Balak took Balaam to the top of Por that looks toward the wilderness. And then Balaam said to Balak, Build seven altars here for me and prepare seven bulls and seven rams. So Balak did as Balaam had said and offered a bull and a ram in each an altar. Maybe this is a guy who just can never get his fill at the buffet. <laughs> we should just feed God even more. Maybe, he's just, maybe we haven't made the right dish. The other thing too is a lot of places... They also believe that certain places had magical power. The more rituals you did in a place, the more powerful that came. And that's true to a certain extent, even today, in the modern day time period. The, the more worship, the more sacrifices that go to certain gods of Hinduism, all that kind of stuff, the more powerful that location gets. And so he's probably taking him to different places that he believes are power centers geographically but at the same time feeding God even more and says perhaps maybe this time we can get a curse out of Yahweh. 